Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Emran Hughes, Communications Director of the Chartered Insurance Institute. In this episode, I'll be talking to Ian McKenna and Melissa Collette. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about the importance of cybersecurity and digital ethics. I'm joined by Ian McKenna, founder and director of the Financial Technology Research Centre, and Melissa Collette, professional standards director of the Chartered Insurance Institute. Here is my conversation with Ian and Melissa. Hello, Ian and Melissa. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hello, everybody. Hello. So, Ian, how has cybersecurity evolved in recent years and what are the main aspects that professionals need to be aware of? I think the biggest difference with cybersecurity in recent years is it's now something you have to be constantly aware of. And you've really got to got to make sure that everybody within the business has an understanding of cybersecurity issues. You, know, you only need one weak link to have disastrous results. So every every single person in the firm needs to engage with cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is an issue all day, every day, and wherever you are. Ian, what are the main threats that insurers and financial planners need to be aware of? And what consequences could they face if they ignore them? Obviously, with the move to more greater working from home and remote working, the threats have really changed recently. Absolutely. As I said uh, just now, it really is a matter of being constantly vigilant. You know, if, if we're moving around, uh, one should be very, very aware of um, use of Wi-Fi hotspots, for example. Does every person that's using a device to connect with your network have a VPN on every device they're connecting with? And do they use it every time? You know, so many organizations roll out this support, but do we use them all the time? It's no use having a form of protection if you don't apply it. Um, Again, issues around constantly updating the protection that you've got, making sure that you've always got the very latest patches. Um, It's interesting, there was some Data came out today from one of the main cybersecurity sources pointing out that, on the one hand, the cloud is now the the site of the largest number of attacks. But on the other hand, if, if you're an advice business running on a relatively dated client server environment, have you got someone employed by the business that is going to patch every machine every single day? Because uh, one, one group of people that really don't skimp uh, on what they spend on technology is cyber criminals. They know the return on investment. They will have absolutely the very latest technology that they can to get through your systems. <laughs> Every advisor should ask themselves, every firm should ask themselves, when were they last penetration tested? You know, have you actually put your systems to the test? Do you have a plan to clearly communicate as you have a legal duty under GDPR to do 
as soon as you are aware of any potential loss of data. It, it's hard to think um, candidly, and, and we focus a huge amount of our thinking on cybersecurity. It is the biggest single issue that keeps me awake at night about the business because this is an area where the criminals are advancing so fast. And they, they do invest vast amounts, they use artificial intelligence, they're attacking at every point. So we, we need to be constantly vigilant. And, and you touched there in terms of regulation and G, you know, GDPR. Melissa, what's the best way for our members to approach cybersecurity? I assume, you know, as, as Ian pointed out, they've got to keep up with what's the latest techniques being used by scammers. But also they need to be aware of what the regulatory requirements are, don't they, in terms of, you know, improving the security of the business and the businesses that they're advising as well and engaging with. Absolutely, Emma. And we would expect our professionals to protect the data held by themselves, by their firms. This is not only required by law, as you say, it's also the right thing to do ethically. So, of course, we expect individual practitioners and firms to be compliant with all the relevant law and regulations, but we also expect them to protect customer data in a responsible way, going beyond the strict letter of the law and think about, you know, how would I feel or or would I want a member of my family's data to be treated in this way? That's a good rule of thumb to help practitioners who are faced with uh, these issues and questions about how to protect data, how to use it responsibly. Um, you know, there are lots of examples of less digitally savvy people being exploited by digitalization. And it's important for professionals, that's part of being a professional, is behaving, you know, according to a code of professional ethics, to think about those who might not have the, the you know, the capabilities who are kind of digitally vulnerable, let's say, and thinking about their needs, as well as, you know, the, the, the general customer. Definitely, Melissa. And touching on that, I mean, Ian, this, as a result of COVID in the last few years, insurers and financial planners have had to change their processes so much. A shift from face-to-face -face meetings to using new messaging technology and new video conferencing and, you know, and the regulatory guidelines used to be you had to have a wet signature on a piece of paper and there is now greater use of e-signatures. It's a real challenge and, you know, it's been a steep learning curve for the profession and the customers that they're serving. So what are some of the fundamental and practical ways that, you know, professionals should be utilising to make sure their customers and clients are staying safe? Well, there are some very obvious basics that, that one really should attend to. And candidly, the industry doesn't do as well as it could. And, I, and I'm as much talking about insurers um, and, and investment platforms as I, as I am advisors. For example, the question of email and encrypted email. It, the reality is, though, it's much better to discourage clients from using email. It's much, much better to push clients towards client portals. And, and perhaps later we'll come on and talk a little bit about the losses and the consequences. I know we're gonna cover, certainly cover the consequences and uh, of data losses, but you know, do not send 
any sensitive data by email, you know, unless it's encrypted. I had a situation myself with an insurer that I won't name who asked me to provide with, with some information relating to a life insurance policy. Said company had insured me that the process was entirely secure. So I put this information into their online service and they kindly emailed me back all the information as a confirmation in an unencrypted email, which was, of course, a total data breach. And insurers and investment providers simply are not doing enough to support advisors in protecting client data. Yeah, there are email encryption systems that are out there that can, that, that can secure these mails. But the problem you so frequently get, and I've come across this on countless occasions, is each different insurer will choose to use a different email encryption system. So that means potentially an advisor has got to license each different system for their own use. Whereas the sensible thing would to be have an industry consensus on this. And indeed, there is an industry consensus solution that has been adopted. But most of the insurers aren't acting on it. So, I mean, you know, that's frankly clear and negligent on the, on the part of uh, insurers and platforms, and, and they should do better. But I would also stress you know, we shouldn't think about uh, cybersecurity isn't just digital. You know, security is about everything. It's about are you operating a clear desk policy? Do people have post-it notes with passwords written on them? You know, one walks through offices all too often. And how often do you see the post-it note up on the screen? Well, you know, do bear in mind that perhaps if you ever have anyone from the regulator walking around their office, they might see that as a data breach. Uh, because it would be categorically. Have, have you taken references on the people that are cleaning your offices? True story. Um, I spoke to an advisor a couple of years ago who found someone uh, that was cleaning their offices. The individual came back to his office uh, mid-evening one, one evening and found a cleaner reading a client file. Yeah, a fact find is everything you need to know to commit extensive identity substitution fraud. And, and frankly, the money that's sitting on advisors' platforms and their long-term investments is vastly, it's far better to target a financial advisor and long-term savings providers. If you, if you want to hit real money, you know, people might have a few hundred quid in their bank account. They've got their long-term savings on their platform and in their pensions. That That's a much, much bigger target. So, you know, and as I say, that is a true story. Um, the individual found somebody reading the file because the excuse was, oh, I'm trying to improve my English. You know, the reality should be no client files should be left on the desk. Um, there is another true story of the CEO of an insurance company who won, on one occasion went around his building um, at about eight o'clock at night and everybody who had left their laptop on the desks, he picked up all these laptops, I think there were 20 or 30 of them, um, and put them all in his office. And the people who'd taken the desk, the laptops off the desk 
from, um, had to go and meet him in the morning and ask for their laptop back. Now, actually, it should never come to that, but that's good data security pra practice, and it's great to hear it from a CEO. My main point is so many of these things, data security is not just digital. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that, um, Ian. And, you know, it, it it's... As the information commissioner said, big data is not a game played by different rules. You've got the same rules that apply. You know, we can all understand about the security of files in a filing cabinet, keeping it locked in the good old days. And they apply equally to laptops. If the data is held in a laptop, they apply equally to data that's held in, you know, servers or emails or wherever the data is held. Data is the new oil and is arguably the most valuable asset a firm can have. So, you know, how do you protect your most valuable asset? Um, you've got to have appropriate levels of security. I mean, the best security you can you can obtain. Well, it's not just cyber risk, is it, Melissa? Essentially, it's reputational risk. You get this wrong, the hard-won reputation can quickly disappear. And, I mean, on that note, obviously, Melissa, you know, to support members, the Professional Standards Team has produced a companion guide to the Code of Ethics for Digital. Can you outline what that covers? Absolutely. So um, I think Ian mentioned earlier about the need to remain vigilant uh, on behalf of our customers and our firms to maintain the integrity of our profession. And that's where I'm coming from about looking at, you know, making sure that our profession doesn't lose trust um, as a result of, of data breaches or the, or the, you know, the unethical use of data. And that's why we formed something called the Digital Ethics Forum, made up of practitioners and experts across this subject. And we published our Digital Ethics Companion, which is designed to help guide practitioners towards good customer outcomes to ensure that public trust in the profession is maintained. And the Digital Ethics Companion is based on the CII's existing code of ethics and its five core principles, which is one, comply with all laws and regulations. Number two, act with ethical standards and integrity. Number three, act in the best interest of each customer. Number four, provide a high standard of service and five, treat people fairly. And I think even in the course of this brief conversation we've had so far, um, we've, we've, we've almost covered um, all of those topics and how that uh, applies in a digital context. And that's exactly what the Digital Ethics Companion is, is, is trying to do, is taking those key principles and saying, well, when we're working digitally, which we are predominantly nowadays, how do we make sure we stay ethical and act responsibly? As Sir Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web, said, his invention is a destroyer of worlds. And we know how much harm can be caused by the unethical use of data. We've seen countless examples in recent times from Facebook manipulating elections, online bullying and trolling to cybercrime, which is a topic we're talking about today. And so we need to ensure that we're vigilant, as Ian said earlier, and that digitalization and the growth of it is underpinned by ethical principles of business. Definitely. I mean, and in terms of touching there in terms of the risk, one of the things we haven't touched on is also companies, the um, scams in terms of people pretending to be 
legitimate companies in the financial services space. Ian, can you give tips there in terms of how, you know, what do companies need to be doing to make sure that their customers aren't being scammed and are dealing with con artists rather than, you know, the companies themselves? Well, um, I, I think the, the first area we've got, we've got, we should focus on, in, and I think it's important to consider the consequences. Emmy mentioned reputational risk earlier. The reality is, who wants to be going to a client as you have a duty uh, to do within seventy-two hours at the most? under GDPR, if you become aware of a data loss, you need to go to all your clients and tell them you've lost their data. Now, there's a, a serious question to ask yourself. 72 hours later, how many of them are still your clients? Of financial impact, the regulator expects that if, you, if anybody who causes a loss of data will provide to the victim service to protect them against identity theft. So you're typically talking services that you might have to provide for, say, two years, at least a year, but possibly two, that might run to 30, 40, 50 pounds per client for every single client you've lost data for. And that's before you get to the situation of, yeah, actually dealing with the impact on the relationship. Uh, again, I do think true stories, even if one protects the identity to, to avoid embarrassment, are a good way to illustrate this. A lot of processes have rightly been brought in by um, investment providers over the last few years, particularly platforms, to make sure that you know, there are certain types of data that are an indicator or certain types of requests uh, that, that indicate possible suspect activity, uh, change of address, change of bank account, et cetera. Uh, there's one case I'm very aware of where now, now usually in these situations, the investment provider or the platform will require the advisor to physically speak to the client to validate um, that, that the instructions are legitimately from the client and it's not a matter of identity. I mean, there is an enormous problem in the legal profession with what's called Friday afternoon fraud, which is where you know, criminals monitor the email addresses and sometimes somehow manage to penetrate the email systems of the lawyers and they will send instructions for change of bank account details. For example, somebody selling, sending the balance of their completion monies over and above the mortgage to the lawyer to complete on the property transaction. You know, they suddenly get an email saying, don't use my normal account, the, you know, use the pur purporting to be the lawyer, um, use this other account and send your deposit monies. Now, my point here is, if you look at the media over the last few years, it's full of these things happening to lawyers. I know this is happening to advisors. I've had several situations where I've been made aware of details of cases. Um, one particularly that springs to mind is where advisor was required and gave the confirmation that they had spoken to the individual. The platform continued to monitor the behavior and they just didn't believe it. And they rang the advisor and said, look, 
we know you told us you'd spoken to the client. Did you really? And that was the point at which the advisor confessed. <laughs> no, they didn't bother. They just passed it on. That advisor had to go back and explain to the client how he put his whole savings at the platform on risk. Now, have a long, hard think. How many people have that conversation? And, and I, I, I hear a lot of people come to me and give me examples of similar frauds that have been stopped through the use of client portals. Many firms, and I think this is a very good practice, will only accept instructions from clients through their secure client portal that they have additional mechanisms to validate. Um, occasionally, clients get um, upset about this. I, 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 by the way, think you can't, pointing out to the client that you're actively making things a little bit more difficult for fraudsters, that's good behavior. And I think we should be celebrating those that are doing it. But I hear so many cases where people tell me they've stopped fraud in this way, I don't hear as many about where it's not stopped, and I don't believe it's not happening. I do worry we've got a major PI problem building up. It just hasn't got to court yet. But, you know, do not. These additional procedures that are being put in place by platforms and long-term savings providers are being there, are being done to collect, protect the clients and protect your businesses. You know, they may be inconvenient, but it's going to be a lot more inconvenient having to ring up and explain that you didn't do it and the client savings have gone missing. I must say, I have seen the odds one come through as an ombudsman's decision over the years, and um, it does make you wonder how many settled, quite rightly settled with clients before it got to the ombudsman. I mean, we've covered so much in terms of the risk and the emerging um, threats that there are. And Ian, you definitely did. You've given us some, a few practical tips during this podcast. I bet there'll be a lot of people walking down their offices um, over the next few days and um, looking out for post-its or um, taking laptops off desks and having some choice conversations. But let, let's leave on a positive note. What are the practical tips in terms of what can people be doing to make a real difference to their cybersecurity? Well, I, I think uh, the Personal Finance Society is taking a great step forward uh, in that regard in that they, they've recently, we've, we've just finished writing a good practice guide, which the society will be publishing very shortly uh, to help firms address a wide range of issues. Um, rather than try and give you one or two bullets, it's eight pages long. I would urge everybody within a regulated firm, I would, I would actually say, require every employee to read that document and overall appoint one person within your business to make sure that everybody has read it. And I would, I mean, you know, we, something we do internally, um, we have regular cybersecurity meetings, we give people internal tests, we actually have spoof hacking emails sent to people deliberately to see if our people try and pick them out. Um, because we want to know. Uh, the last thing, by the way, is if you make a mistake, put your hand up, don't hide it. If you've clicked that link, if you've opened that website, the most important thing to do is let people know as soon as possible so they can act on it. If you make the mistake, own up fast, then your whole team can work together to fix it. 
And I know that's guidance within the digital um, companion um, to the Code of Ethics, isn't it, Melissa? And I think Ian's touched that this is something that's constantly evolving. It's not a, you know, something on the occasional agenda. It's something that needs to be owned by senior management and is made everybody's responsibility. But can you give any recommendations for kind of like further guidance and resources that people should be tapping into to make sure that they're, as I think Ian said earlier, that they're as clued up on this subject as the scammers are? Absolutely. I think that this guidance that PFS is producing is is totally in line with and complements the CII's digital ethics companion, which covers insurance and the personal finance profession. Its principles are exactly summed up in some of the things and the tips that, that Ian's talking about that in practice. So the principles are set out in that companion guide, we've also published a practical guide to digital ethics, which looks at specific examples under each of the core five core principles and, you know, things that people might encounter in their in their working life on the job. And I'd also like to draw attention to a guide we've produced on addressing gender bias in artificial intelligence. It's it's slightly off the topic of cybersecurity, but it certainly is something that we need to be vigilant as firms not to allow algorithms to um, effectively breach our equality laws. And we've also produced recently guidance on using social media professionally and safely. And I think, again, this is sort of part and parcel to having a a robust digital strategy um, alongside having very strong cybersecurity. It's actually making sure everyone is using social media in a way that reflects well and protects the reputation of our sector. So I would urge people to type in CII Code of Ethics. It gets to our Code of Ethics landing page where you can access all of this good and useful guidance. And um, there'll also be links available when the new cybersecurity guide is published. Fantastic. I mean, on messaging and social media alone, Melissa, there's more than enough for another podcast. And I'm sure we'll revisit some of these topics again in the future. Thank you both for sharing this information and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of CII Radio. To find out more, visit thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts or follow us on Twitter at CII Group. Until next time, goodbye.